0: Sunday the 12th of January 2020, this is Monica's House View with me Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Iran admits it accidentally shot down a commercial airliner, killing all on board. We'll ask what could happen next. My studio guest Simon Brook will join me to discuss that and why the former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg has committed to fight Trump to the very end. Plus why a greener approach is the way forward for Austria's political coalition.
1: Austrian President Alexander Van der Bellen instructs Sebastian Kurz to form a new government for the second time in two years. Nobody quite knows what's going to happen
0: next. All that in the weekend newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. And Simon Brooke, the journalist and communications expert, is in the studio with me. Welcome, Simon. Thank
2: you. Good morning. Good
0: morning. Now, the streets in parts of Tehran have been filled with protesters angry at what they say are the lies told by Iranian officials about what happened to the Ukrainian passenger jet shot down last week. The crash happened on Wednesday, but for three days Tehran insisted it had been caused by mechanical failure. Um, Simon, I think the thing that surprised me so much over the last couple of days is not just the admission by the Tehran, officials, which we'll come to in a moment, But the fact that people took to the streets straight away to start to protest, this is not something that you see in Iran, is it?
2: Well, um, it's interesting, isn't it, that originally when um, uh, Qassam Soleimani was executed by by the US, there was naturally a great groundswell of uh, loyal, nationalistic um, outpouring of grief, wasn't there? And the government obviously benefited greatly. Um, According to Al Jazeera, um, General Soleimani's approval rating Amongst Iranians was something like 82 percent, according to a poll last year. So a very popular man who was seen as a great defender of the country and the Islamic Revolution. But I think what's interesting is that, as you say, um, that we now see these demonstrations on the streets, and that is because the th- we've had a 180 degree turn, haven't we? Suddenly, instead of this being a sort of uh, a situation which has brought great Domestic and international support for the Iranian government—it's now flipped around because of the uh, shooting down of the Iranian, of uh, the yeah, sorry, the Ukrainian jet, um, um, uh, and the casualty, the deaths uh, that resulted from that. And I think what's um, interesting is just. Uh, as you said, we had sort of 48 hours where it looked like, or perhaps slightly longer, wasn't it, where it looked like nobody was sure who did it. The Iranians said, it's definitely not us. Then, of course, they had to... Fess up, if you like, and admit it. It was them, and that has prompted those demonstrations. I think um, reading uh, between the lines, there's a lot of pent up uh, aggression and uh, anger towards the Iranian government. Anyway, um, various reports from the papers talking about um, people describing the the way they handled the this uh, this uh, this shooting down of the plane as the big lie, part of psychological warfare, and then. Um slogans from protesters who are very fed up with the Iranian government's um, insurgencies, actions in Gaza, and Palestine, um, in uh, Yemen, in Lebanon. We have no money or fuel to hell with Palestine. Um, people have been chanting in Iran and uh, it's been linked to the fact that they just don't have the basics that they need to survive. It is
0: isn't an astonishing thing that, that, that this is the moment that we see the Iranians um, actually express some sort of public anger. The last time they did this was in, what, 2009, in the the attempted Green Revolution, and that ended very, very badly. And I wonder whether this is a different time because of those... um Terrible, you know, problems that people are experiencing because of the sanctions. Um, because the Iranians have tried to sort of keep a lid on it. We've had the British ambassador to Iran be arrested and then subsequently released in the last 24 hours. He was accused of trying to foment the protest. Well, he was arrested in the barbers after he'd actually left. Um, I think he'd it's gone sick, down yes. to express condolences for the four British who died yeah. in that in that plane, in that plane crash. What I find astonishing though is that and I wonder whether this is how difficult it is to say, but there is some sort of relief that this was not an American plane that had been downed. I mean, we saw Justin Trudeau yesterday, firm, but boy, did he have a cool head when he was talking about Iran taking full responsibility. And given the context of the shooting down of this plane, in the immediate aftermath of the uh, assassination of General Soleimani in Iraq, in the immediate aftermath of the Iranian missile attacks on the Uh, American airbases, everybody else has just said, right, we keep a cool head here and we let Iran, and I I wonder whether the cool head has actually come from Tehran as well, say, look, we can't, we cannot try to remotely agitate a situation here. Let's just keep our heads cool. And maybe this will sort itself out naturally and in a way that other countries manage to sort it out.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Justin Trudeau has um, handled this issue uh, very well, hasn't he? I mean, I didn't realise that uh, there is a large expat community of Iranians in Canada. So it's only right um, that he should uh, come to the fore here. But yeah, I think it's interesting. Cool heads. And one of the things that the Iranian government will want to do will be... To continue to be co-op, appear to be cooperative. Um, they've said that they'd invite other nations in to uh, take part in the investigation. So they're treading a fine line, aren't they? But I think what they need to to what they realise they've got to do is to try and neutralise to some extent uh, the awful truth that uh, it was the Revolutionary Guard that shot down this plane, to try and show that they are cooperating with um, other countries around the world, but also to try and diffuse some of the anger um, at the uh, that, as you were saying, we're seeing with the demonstrations in the streets at home.
0: And the immediate comparison that was drawn yesterday after the admission of the Iranians was, um, th- in, in recent history, we had the downing of uh, Malaysia Airlines flight MH, I think it was 17, wasn't it? Because two planes disappeared within, within short gaps of each other. Um, very, very similar circumstances ground-to-air missile, someone making a huge mistake, a small error that leads to a catastrophe, possibly Russian-supplied armaments. But most importantly, the Russians have never actually admitted to downing MH17, whereas the Iranians were quick to come out there. And I wonder whether this will be a signal to the likes of Europe and indeed to everybody else, which is actually the Iranians can be dealt with now.
2: Yes, it, well, it it's also throws into um, sharp uh, into the spotlight, doesn't it? The the JCPOA, the conflict, and I think this is what's going to be interesting now that that we see this conflict between the US taking a very hawkish approach and the Europeans who are. Um, very much uh, in favour of containing Iran, not provoking them in any way. And the big debate at the moment about whether um, the uh, the JCPOA, the deal that um, Barack nuclear, Obama, the nuclear, deal. the nuclear deal, exactly, sorry, that uh, President Obama negotiated and were very much supported, as I say, by the European Union. The criticism of that has been that that by allowing the Iranians to trade oil or whatever, this gives them money that they can then use to uh, you know to de- destabilize the Middle East, as I say in in yemen in, uh, in um, Lebanon and other places. so I think as this story develops we 're going to see more of that differentiation aren 't there aren't aren 't we between the the hawkish u s approach and uh, the Europeans which um, who you know have been wanting to um, take a little bit more a softer approach and have a bit more of an engagement in an attempt still to limit um, uh, the sort of foreign adventurism, if you like, of the Iranians.
0: There is that underlying fear, though, that this area of the world is, is famous for having a very, very long memory. And the Iranians have, I think, after the, um, the the killing of General Soleimani, everybody thought, oh, this is just a quick retaliation. And actually, the the warning was, no, Iran will not retaliate immediately. But this will be a very, very, very long game that they will play, and that there will be allies and uh, proxy gestures. Perhaps the downing of the Ukrainian plane will curtail some of the worst effects. But this stuff will not be forgotten, will it? And I think it's woe anybody who thinks that actually this is all done and dusted at top speed.
2: Yes, and I think we've also got to look as well at what the what levers, if you like, the Iranian government can pull. And obviously, one of the most effective ones is to disrupt oil production in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, attacking ships, um, uh, kidnapping uh, supplies, w- or whatever, um, and just to see if they can use that possibly. But I think it's what in- what's interesting is they have a, a tightrope to play here, uh, to to walk here. The government does anyway, because between, as I say taking any action which fulfills their uh, religious um, crusade against uh, against uh, Sunni Muslims and against the West, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, making sure that uh, the people um, in the streets of Tehran and around Iran have food, fuel, all those basic things that they'll want, that, that they need. And I think the other thing to bear in mind as well about the government of Iran is that it's not one homogeneous organisation, if you like. You've got the Revolutionary Guards, you've got other aspects of it, and um Obviously, you get disagreements in any kind of government in, in a difficult situation, but it's going to be particularly noticeable here because, as I say, you get these competing organisations that run the country. Well,
0: let's move on to another subject briefly uh, about competing organisations. Um, the former New York mayor, Michael Bloomberg, well, even if he loses a Democratic nomination for president, he says, the former New York mayor, that is, that he and his giant campaign machine will switch efforts to help whoever does become the candidate to beat Donald Trump. Um I mean, it was interesting that Bloomberg actually entered the the race himself, isn't it? Especially at such a time when everybody thought, well, this is a bit too late. The fact is, though, that to have that amount of Bloomberg firepower behind you, if you're taking on Donald Trump, that must... It'd create quite a lot of smiling in the Democrat camp at the moment.
2: Well, I think they'll be delighted. As you say, um, whether he wins or not, it does look unlikely that he is going to get the nomination. He's somewhere uh, in sort of around fifth place, according to Democratic voters, quite a bit behind Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, Pete uh, Buttigieg... But um, he does have that economic firepower, as you say, and um, we've got reports that um, he's uh, has roughly 500 uh, staff members committed to paying uh, through uh, November in battleground, working in the battleground states throughout uh, Florida, North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, as well as uh, as well as Arizona. Um, and also he has committed a huge amount of money Hawkfish, a digital company started by Bloomberg uh, that's carrying out his $100 million online ad campaign we read and this is seen as competition for Trump's campaign manager Brad Pascale who has been very um, successful in using um, you know, the digital world and things interesting article yesterday in the, uh, the weekend Financial Times by Gillian looking at the whole issue of data and uh, social media in campaigning and she points out that actually um, the Democrats have always been a bit on the back foot, they've always been a bit nervous about this and one supporter says the Democrats keep putting their money into television even though the voters don't live there. The Democrat candidates have come up as with a non-digital, uh, have come up in a non-digital culture so it'll be interesting to see if Bloomberg with his economic fire, financial fire power can actually reverse that situation. And it's
0: a clever way of making sure that you can add an awful lot of firepower without actually having to declare any contributions, the rules being so strict when it comes to the amount of funding and support Mm. that you can have in America. Um, It's an interesting way. The staffers, the Bloomberg funded staffers won't work directly for the nominee, says the New York Times. Um, They'll be paid by an independent funding vehicle which, as you mentioned, will mean that they can get around it. You're listening to Monocle 24. This is Monocle's house to you. It's Emma Nelson here, joined in the studio today by the writer and communications expert, Simon Brook. Now, Austria's People's Party and the Greens struck an unlikely coalition agreement last week with the Conservative leader, Sebastian Kurz, once more becoming the country's Chancellor. At 33, he also reclaimed the title of Europe's youngest head of government from the 34-year-old Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin. So, What's in store for this new green-coloured coalition? Our Monocle's Alexei Korolyov reports now from Vienna.
3: ich den Eindruck gewonnen, dass die österreichische Volkspartei in Verhandlungen von Mehrheit October
1: 2019, Austrian President Alexander Van der Bellen instructs Sebastian Kurz to form a new government for the second time in two years. Nobody quite knows what's going to happen next. Will the Conservative leader renew his ill-fated alliance with the far-right? Will he revive an unloved coalition with the Social Democrats, or will he go in a completely different direction? Last week, after two months of negotiations, Curzon's People's Party joined forces with the Green Party. Apart from anything else, it is a remarkable turnaround for the Greens. In just over two years, they've gone from having no representation in Parliament to entering national government for the first time. As the junior partner in the coalition, they are getting just four ministerial posts out of 15. But two of those are the Justice Ministry and a new super-ministry overseeing environment, energy and infrastructure. Both will be run by women, one of whom is the daughter of Bosnian immigrants not bad. But don't forget that at the top of this extraordinary new cabinet, is the same man who rubbed shoulders with the populists, closed the door on migrants and praised Hungary's right-wing Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Granted, Sebastian Kurz himself acknowledged that deep differences remain between the parties. But argued that they could be overcome. Das Ergebnis ist ein sehr, sehr gutes, und ich bin mehr als nur
3: The Greens agree. On some things, even our Green positions, like on the environment, is something that you could call in a way conservative because you don't want to take everything out of the soil of the earth you don't want to destroy all the woods and all the the free landscape that we still have.
1: Yeah. Ulrike Lunacek is a former Green Party chief who will serve in the culture ministry under the current leader Werner Kogler.
3: You, you can see it from a bit from a conservative side and on the other hand even on on refugees there's lots of people on the Christian on the Catholic side even priests who have taken refugees into the churches and that's people who generally vote conservative party so there are parts of people's party who would side with us on some issues and we also on some with them
1: the coalition agreement includes ambitious measures to decarbonize Austria's economy and make it climate-neutral by 2040 a decade earlier than the official EU target the deal also increases a tax on air travel while cutting income and corporation taxes Controversially, though, it also includes plans to extend a ban on headscarves in schools from the age of 10 to 14 and introduce preventive custody of potentially dangerous individuals. This, coupled with the use of the term political Islam, has led many opposition politicians and Muslim activists to criticise the deal for being too restrictive. But the parties also pledged greater government transparency. And in a country where politicians have often been caught abusing their powers, It is a much-needed move. It may even help the coalition see its full term through, something that the country's last two administrations failed to do. So what will Austria look like in five years' time? A last word from one-time Green Party leader, Ulrike Lunacek.
3: Well, um, it will have a lot less import of fossil fuels. We will have less poverty among children and, and families with many children, which is the case now. In Austria is one of the richest countries in Europe. We will have shaped also the economy in a way where Taxes are paid for waste, for using fossil fuels, and we will have a scheme for migration where we know that we give people chances to migrate and to come here, to work here, and maybe at the middle level, that in Austrian society, hate speech and hate-mongering, that that will have gone down a lot. For
1: Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. Hey, you're listening to Monocle's House View here with me, Emma Nelson and Simon Brook. In a moment, we go through the newspapers.
1: The Monocle Weekly, our original Sunday show, brings you the best interviews with the writers, artists, thinkers and innovators that shape our times. Also featuring fearless presenters. It's not
2: illegal, but it does have an effect. Uh-oh. Are you ready for this, Tom? I could do with some stimulation and some relaxation. How traumatised am I going to be? How much of this do we need to drink to get an effect? All of it.
1: Who ask the probing questions? What is the kinkiest animal? That's
2: pretty kinky. Headless thrusting head.
3: And a good old-fashioned star turn or two, just for good measure. We had a
1: small editorial conference today where everyone was going, what do you think of Kylie's concert? When did you go? When are you going? What's happening? Yeah, I heard you guys had a debrief Yeah, we've had a debrief. That's the Monocle Weekly, Sundays at 12 noon London time on Monocle 24. You wouldn't want to finish your
0: week without it. Welcome back. This is Monocle's House View. It's Sunday the 12th of January 2012 and to go through the weekend newspapers I'm delighted to say I'm joined by the journalist, broadcaster and communications expert Simon Brooke. Hello Simon. Welcome Hello. back to, uh, to the second half of the programme. Right. Uh, you've been doing the heavy lifting with some pretty decent newspapers today actually but dominated. By the enormous fallout of the imminent departure of uh, Meghan and Harry from the from the senior ranks of the royal family here in the UK, something that, in many ways, is a, is a story about celebrity, and it's a story about a family that is having difficulties and as someone mentioned a few days ago over christmas who wouldn't want to resign from their family once or twice in their lifetime um Very but this expensive. has much bigger um. ramifications doesn't it
2: well if you're a royal it certainly does doesn't it yes and um <clears throat> it was interesting is uh, all of the newspapers here continuing to pour over this issue and uh uh, look at the the effect it's having on the royal family. Um, the Sunday Times looks west towards the U.S. Um, inevitably, given that that's uh, certainly. Um, Harry and Meghan uh, will probably go and live in Canada or perhaps in the US, we understand. LA was one of their homes, one of the places that's been uh, mooted that they might uh, relocate to. But a story here in the Sunday Times suggesting that um, that they will be looking to the Obamas and the Clintons um, for advice and support. Um, we know, don't we, that, they, uh, that um, Harry and Meghan get on well with the Obamas. And uh, as the Sunday Times pointed out, um, uh, barack obama was very supportive of harry's invictus games initiative um the t- piece is basically about the money that they could earn and pointing out that the clintons and the obamas have been very successful in monetizing their assets their uh, uh, position in the world um but of course this is the real problem isn't it that the fact is that when it comes to the fin- the, the royal family you're either in or out. And certainly when it comes to money, the idea that using your royal status, um, enjoying, uh, you know, royal uh, accommodation, you know, wherever you might live, uh, getting money from the civil list, whatever it might be, doing that and then also doing the financial thing, your, sorry, the, the the entrepreneurship uh the the other deals or whatever when you just can't do the two together. So it's interesting that the Obamas and the Clintons might help Harry and and Meghan on this, but I think that they all need to understand, don't they, that they've got to be very careful when it comes to the clash between the royal and the celebrity entrepreneurialism.
0: Well, arguably, some people have said that the the Obamas' involvement has been um, in the commercial world, actually has been a masterclass into how to keep your hands clean, to do it with a little bit of dignity. Um, They 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 struck uh, they struck a deal with Netflix which i think a lot of people raised their um, their eyebrows about but the likes of i think it's an american factory which is it which is a program which seems to be d- doing so well um, and the and the fact that they seem to be committed in doing in in engaging in uh, you know positive things and charitable things is something that Clearly, Meghan and Harry are going to have to take a, um, be inspired by. I think the the thing that a lot of people are worried about is if you actively seek cash, that um, even, you know, having been a president or a prime minister or any head of state, that to actively look greedy makes you look pretty grim, doesn't it?
2: Yes, you've got to be very careful about that, haven't you? It's one thing to raise money for charity or to. uh, you know, point out where uh, funding should go, or something like that. But um, you've got to be very, very careful uh, in the way that you do uh, raise money. Otherwise, I mean, the, the Sunday Times pointing out that the Obamas um, earned uh, a record 50 million pounds joint advance for a two-book uh, deal of mem- uh, two-book deal pair of uh, memoirs, um, and that's probably acceptable. It also points out that Bill Clinton pocketed £11.5 million for his uh, 2004 biography. Um, And Hillary Clinton actually, interestingly, got £9 slightly less, uh, in 2014. So there are sort of legitimate, acceptable ways in which ex-politicians and people can can, uh, earn some money. But then, as I say, you've got to be very careful if you're a royal. But it will be interesting to see if the Obamas and the Clintons can help them raise money or... Um, deal with the financial aspect of their new situation in a way that doesn't offend the public that doesn't look like they're exploiting anybody or being greedy I think
0: the word superbrand yeah, well, has exactly. come to mind but I do like You've the word very
2: careful with the super brand, I love the they? fact
0: that within about 30 seconds of it all happened we'd invented the word mexid
2: Yes exactly <laughs>
0: That just made me hoot um, right let's move on to an article in the uh, in the weekend edition of Le Monde it's a two page spread on the influence of Airbnb in French cities and French towns. And it, it makes a very, very serious point. Um, it's written by a, a researcher at the Geography Department of the University of Bordeaux, which I find absolutely refreshing, given the fact that the you know, National Newspaper's lead article is written by an academic. Um, it talks about how Airbnb has, has thrown our cities upside down. It's meant that um, the rent, r- rent rates have gone through the roof. The middle classes have left the cities. And while retaining their apartments in the centre of Paris or Bordeaux, for example, they've gone out a little bit into the, into the suburbs, pushing out those who are less wealthy even further out of their cities. Uh, and it's led to a, a huge imbalance in the way that, the, in the way that French cities operate. Um, it's one of those things that starts off and you think, gosh, it's just an innocent platform, a little bit like Uber. In fact, they'd call it Uberization. It's an innocent platform which, which has profound socioeconomic effects.
2: I think it was interesting. Yes, I mean Barcelona uh, was another city which, which um, saw demonstrations in the streets against this, didn't they? Um, both from um, people who can't rent uh, flats because owners are now doing it through Airbnb. Also, um, people who realise that the apartment next to them, which used to have the the family or the couple who were very quiet and lived there for many years, is now seeing uh, partygoers, loud, noisy tourists, as they would say, turning up every week. Um, So I think there's obviously real um, concerns here. I think what's interesting also about this, especially in Le Mans story, is that, It's part of this division we're seeing, aren't you? We can imagine a lot of older people, perhaps working class people who live in uh, cities who live in parts of the world which are very attractive to tourists that might have beautiful histo- histories or whatever, but uh, they're suddenly being invaded by these digital digital natives, if you like um, so pe- you know people who are embrace the web, who reach for their phone to do absolutely everything uh, are suddenly um, exploiting their cities and and their uh, parts of the world as they would see it so I think it's an interesting example perhaps of this divide between more traditional um, uh, people in places, people more, tra- you know, traditions in places that haven't been quite so touched by the, um, you know, the, um, the, the 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 digital world. As I say, clashing with people who just think that the, the whole world is theirs as as they tap in a few details into their phone.
0: What also has the profound effect is that the city becomes a transient place; that you no longer have a neighbourhood, um, and all you do is on a Friday and a Sunday, you hear. Um, suitcases being rolled down the pavement and you never meet your neighbour because you don't know who your neighbour is.
2: Because they're going to change every week. They're only going to be here for the weekend. I really do wonder
0: what the effect of that is going to be on our cities when actually we become more isolated and communities don't feel... As if there's anywhere to live. I mean, if I, if I go out and I see tourists and they say, oh, where's a nice place for lunch? Where's a nice place for dinner? It's great that I still know that there's a locality to go. But if you have nothing but visitors, where is that sense of community? Where is that sense of, uh, you know, oh, there's somewhere decent to go and have a glass of wine? And so that you can recommend to your neighbours. It. I, I just wonder whether anybody's thinking about what's going to be happening in 30, 40 years' time with this.
2: You do wonder. I mean, I have to say there's a very interesting book um, by David Goodhart, who's... Uh, originally from the left, but uh, but now seems to be um, perhaps disillusioned with some of the the ideas that he once embraced. Uh, the road to somewhere um, looks at the fact that uh, you've got two tribes, really, not so much left and right these days, but you've got the, the, the anywheres, the people who live in different cities, who've worked around the world, who travel without thinking about it, who have moved away from where they were born. On the other hand, you've got the, the somewheres, the people who... Um, probably live in more or less the same place they were first, that, that they were born in. And in fact, um, that accounts for a huge number of people um, in, in all kinds of countries, certainly in the UK. And I think what's interesting, as I say, we're getting this clash between the somewheres uh, and the anywheres. And it, the other problem it speaks to as well is, as we've seen with in Venice, for instance, recently, is just the problem of tourism. I mean, we all love to explore a beautiful city like Paris or Barcelona or Venice or whatever. But at the same time, we know the easier we make it, the more of us do it, the more we're damaging uh, the cities themselves. It is an
0: irresistible thing, isn't it? Although yeah. when Of course, we are, other I... people
2: wouldn't travel, then I can. Of sort course,
0: of I stayed in London over Christmas and I was just going, tourists are everywhere, I can't get to do anything. And I suddenly thought, actually, no, they're bringing us money. That's true. But they're really irritating me.
2: But that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem, isn't it? I think it's probably it's probably quality, not quantity, isn't it? You want people to travel less, but to embrace the culture more and spend some more money to help us locals.
0: I wonder how anybody's ever going to tell me to stop getting on a and true. have some fun or a train and go and have a look at something else, it's pretty much important. Simon Brooke, thank you so much for joining thank us you. on Monocle 24, and that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to our guests and also our supervising producer Ben Ryland, our researcher Giacomo Harper, and our studio manager Nora Hole. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend.